This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its 6 year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc hello everyone and welcome to slash film daily today is thursday november 16th 2023 on today's episode of the show we're going to be talking about the hunger games my name is ben pearson i'm an editor at slashfilm.com and i'm joined on today's episode by slash film editors jacob hall Hello, hello. BJ Colangelo. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Happy Hunger Games, and may the odds be ever in your favor. Glorious. And Brad Omen. Hey, that's me. So cheeky. Okay, so... Why, uh, I, I, I wish I had known. I would have I done something, too. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta commit to the bit, Jacob. <laughs> oh, look, look I'll, I'll just be the Liam Hemsworth and be incredibly boring. <laughs> Damn. Okay. Sure no one's on Team Gale. <laughs> catching strays immediately. Uh, okay, so yes, as you can probably surmise if you're listening to this episode, we're here to talk about uh, and, and sort of deliberate on our ranking of the Hunger Games films. Once again, this is going to be sort of an audio version of an article that's going to be up on SlashFilm.com. So you can read more you know, in more depth and stuff about that when the article goes up. But we wanted to sort of, again, pull back the curtain, take you inside the process. And uh, once again, I will hand the reins over to Jacob to uh, help lead this nonsense. Yeah, so we're doing this because The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes is hitting theaters this week. And what we did is off mic, we've already ranked the original four movies uh, with the help of slash writers Jeremy Mathai and Double Priyadetta. We mathematically put together a list. And we came up with how the first four are. So what we're going to do is we're going to break down why we ranked the first four and the way they fell. And then we're going to live on air uh, decide where, where where Songbird and Snakes will fall on the list. Uh, we'll, we'll have that discussion here. Get the get to literally hear how the sausage gets made on a slash film list. Um, so but before we get started, though, I want to really quickly go around the go around the table here and talk about 
how everyone's relationship to Hunger Games because I read the first book back in the day, you know, and I thought it was okay. You know, it's very YA, very, you know, very much for an its intended audience. I really like the movies and my wife likes them more than me and she puts them on all the time. So I've seen them many, many times and I don't think they get old. I think they're really sharp, interesting, well-crafted dystopian sci-fi that really lean into like, like really sharp ideas for, for YA that I think are kind of elevated by the film adaptations. Uh, BJ, how do you feel about the Hunger Games overall? So the Hunger Games hit at the absolute perfect time for me um, because it was when I had finished Harry Potter and I was not super interested in Twilight outside of like dunking on it. So this was the big book series for me as an older teen that I could really just kind of sink my teeth into. And I became very fascinated with the series and its approach to sort of serving as like baby's first radicalization um, <laughs> in terms of a book series of don't trust the government, they're out to get you, uh, which I think is a very important lesson for any American teen to learn at some point. Um, but I loved the books. And then when the movies came out, I just became, com I was completely enamored with them and I continued to be enamored with them and how well they have aged. I actually think that they are better to watch now than they were during the Obama administration personally i would agree with that they uh instead of feeling like you know hey here's an out there concept they feel increasing like oh no th should i be taking notes yeah like <laughs> not to get too into the weeds about it but i did write an article back in march uh, about how the the prequel is right on time it's more relevant than ever uh gen z has been rediscovering the hunger games and this is a uh, a property they've really fixated towards and just with the recent events like I can't get the sound of Jennifer Lawrence screaming like they bombed a hospital like out of my mind because that's my Twitter feed this week yeah all right uh Brad what's your relationship to Hunger Games movies yeah so back when uh the movies happened that's when I decided to dig into the books because I had heard you know uh people talking about them and I have a younger sister who's actually 13 years younger than me and so these came out like in a prime time for her and she uh really wanted me to read them too so I, I breezed through those and I really liked them but much like Jacob uh, I ended up liking the movies a lot more just because I like how they adapted the material and uh you know I, I really liked Jennifer Lawrence uh in in this role it was this was came you know it came after Winter's Bone and I just thought she was really compelling as a, a new actress who really just made a big splash uh after getting that Oscar nomination um and so it was yeah it just came at a good time and I feel like of all the the huge wave of young adult adaptations that came out in the wake of trying to capture like the next Harry Potter uh, Hunger Games and Maze Runner are probably the two best like to ha have like uh, a successful series adaptation that actually improves upon the book material and gives you something that is compelling and also you know kind of stands the test of time because like you know, Hunger Games is more relevant than ever Maze Runner uh, if you go back and look at the, the those movies, like they're it's fantastic sci-fi bleak adventure kind of stuff. So yeah, I'm I'm all about these movies. Yeah, you hear that? The Giver, you sucked. <laughs> <laughs> uh, ben, you're not as big Hunger Games guy, but you're you're sitting in to sort of uh, help us rally rally to hear. I am. Yes, I, I actually gave up on this movie franchise. I watched the first three movies, and uh, Hunger Games: Mockingjay Part One was just kind of I don't know a little bit bland for me. Like I guess it just wasn't enough to convince me to finish out the series which is strange because i was like 
uh, I think the term is pot committed in poker where you've, you know, you've, you've put a bunch of chips in already. Um, and so I'd watch the first three out of four and then I just sort of walked away and just never even thought about finishing this. And I've heard surprisingly good things about the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. And we'll talk about where that ranks here shortly. I was going to just completely skip that movie, but now after hearing all this positive buzz, I'm probably going to check that one out as well. All right, so we're going to jump into our ranking of the initial four movies, uh, going you know from bottom to top. I just want to say that I like all these movies. Uh, I I would watch all of them again, uh, even the ones that people don't like. So when we say worst to best here, it's going. I it's really subjective in, in a lot of ways. And so let's start with Mockingjay Part Two, which is last on the list, and it was actually pretty close to Mockingjay Part One in, in our voting uh, tallies. It was really neck and neck, and. I remember this movie, the reaction I remember when this came out was that people were really bummed out by it. It's a bleak movie with an extremely bleak ending that offers no real, like, solid closure for the characters. But intentionally, it does not say, hey, a war has been won. A bunch of people are dead. You are now okay to live your life and be free. It says, no, a bunch of people are dead. You have PTSD and you have to live with that for the rest of your life. War sucks, which is a real downer way to end this series. But also, I feel any other way would have been irresponsible. I, I like that Mockingjay Part 2 was a huge kick in the shins. Like you were kicking the nuts um, <laughs> about what war actually means and what it does to people. Uh, Brad, what's your opinion on, on Mockingjay Part 2? Where did you put it in your ranking? Uh, yeah, I put Part 2 uh, at the bottom for me just because... Uh, both movies are hindered by the fact that they split the book into two movies. And director Francis Lawrence has even acknowledged that this himself, that he didn't like having to do that. And given the opportunity, he would not do it again. And so it just kind of takes the wind out of the sails of, of the finale. And it feels like it kind of sputters to, to an end, you know, and, and in a way the book kind of feels like that as well. Um, which is, it's a shame that they kind of had to split it up that way, but it's uh, the story itself. It still, still ends you know, where, where it should. Um, but it's, yeah, the, the movie itself just, just feels incomplete because they had to split it. BG, are you pro Mockingjay part two or, or anti? I am actually pretty pro Mockingjay part two. I actually prefer it over Mockingjay part one, but my issues with it are the pacing. I understand why the movies had to be split, um, but I would have honestly preferred like a mini series because my issues are the stuff that is left out. The fact that Prim's death, I guess, spoiler alert for a movie that's like over a decade old, but uh, the the glossing over Prim's death um, and how that affects Katniss and not being like such a focal point in part two is really bothersome for me because that's the entire reason she got into the games in the first place is to protect Prim and we don't really see that because we have to wrap up this movie. Um, I, I would have watched a five hour long epic of the mocking jay put together that's what i would have preferred all right so but it sounds like all of us don't dislike this movie i mean i think like i remember the reaction this movie was kind of a box office um disappointment compared to the previous ones it wasn't quite as huge uh do you think it's because it's a, it's a downer or do you think people were just maybe a little burnt out after f- like three straight years of hunger games movies I think some I think of it was that, but also the the split because I think people re- got really sick of, got like it kind of worked for Harry Potter, and then Twilight did it, and the Hunger Games did it. And everyone's just like, this needs to stop. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's definitely a huge contributing factor. But the fact that it is a downer, I mean, we just weren't in a 
a place culturally where we wanted that sort of thing. We were in like our optimism era. So for something to be like, no, 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 <laughs> we're not allowed to be optimistic. There's still bad things happening. Everyone's like, but I don't like that. <laughs> That's not nice. All right. Moving on to our next uh, one. This is one that once I may have to say some issues is part two, which is Mockingjay part one. And I will argue at this movie has the best single sequence the entire series, which is the scene where Katniss sings that folk song as it overlays all the scenes of armed rebellion across all the districts, uh, the ambush in the woods, the, do- the bombing of the dam, uh, a real Andor 10 years before Andor kind of vibe to the sequence. And this movie doesn't have an ending and it probably is too bloated, but if that movie comes on, and I'm anywhere close to that scene, I will stick around to watch that scene. I think that scene has that much power and it's the best directed moment in the sequence. I'm sorry, in the whole series. Uh, BJ, Mockingjay Part 1 thoughts. I do love Mockingjay Part 1. That's the thing is like, <laughs> you're we're kind of splitting hairs between uh, the Mockingjay films. Um, that sequence is beautiful. I think The Hanging Tree is a phenomenal um, just bit of music. And I love the way that it's used. And I do love that this is where we start to see the behind the scenes of how propaganda works. Um, I think it's really important that people see that. And I think they do handle it quite well in this movie. Brad, do you have the same issues here? You have a part two? Yeah, pretty much. But I, I do like uh, I, I do like this one uh, more than part two. And what I uh, you mentioned that one sequence. And uh, the thing that it reminded me me of is a sequence that I love from Return of the King when Billy Boyd sings Edge of Night over that uh, battle sequence with, you know, Denethor munching away at his, his meal and like the berry juice spilling off his lips. And so there's a, there's a great contrast between. Uh, the song and just like the the juxtaposition of the, the imagery with you know the music it worked really well um and like you can't deny too like one of the the best things um about these movies too is like the ensemble cast and like after the incredible cast of catching fire the fact that mockingjay you know kind of upped the ante and introduced you know so many other cool new faces um it just it, it made it you know it was still an event even though like it kind of you know lost steam towards the end it was uh it felt like the beginning of a cool finale all right, so let's jump into our number two on the list, which is the original Hunger Games, the only one not directed by Francis Lawrence, directed by Gary Ross, uh, who, to his credit, had the good sense to cast uh, um, a lot of his actors uh, um, who would go on to define the series. Uh, I'm going to be a little controversial here and say that I ranked this one third on my personal ballot. I would not put this one second. I think it feels a little cheaper which is probably by not, not no one's fault because, you know, Lionsgate didn't have, you know, the, the, the faith yet in this one that they did in the, in the sequels after this one made so much money. But also, I just don't think Gary Ross is as strong a visual director as Francis Lawrence. The, the whole shaky camera action scene is, uh, is a little incoherent. So I, I like this movie, but I, I will sooner watch any of the sequels. Am I being controversial here? I don't think you're being controversial. I've also heard people that end up ranking this as the third um, instead of the second. It is the second for me on for for exactly what you said. Like this establishes who these characters are and is the movie where I do fall in love with these characters. Um, Effie Trinket is my single favorite character in the entire franchise, and seeing what Elizabeth Dank- Elizabeth Banks does in this movie um, is just electrifying. But also just getting that groundwork laid with Jennifer Lawrence, who is just such a superstar. Uh, the issues that I have with this movie are you know the 
the director stuff. Um, I agree. I think Francis Lawrence is infinitely better. Um, but I can put it aside because the character work that these actors are doing is so phenomenal. Amanda Stenberg, I cry every single time Rue dies. I can't help it. I don't, it doesn't matter how I know that it's coming. I know how it's going to happen. I, it doesn't matter. I ball like a baby every time. And that's, that's a powerful, magical thing that this movie is going to always have in my heart. Yeah, the original Hunger Games is second for me, too, just because uh, I, I give so much credit to the table setting, because even though Gary Ross isn't as good of a director as Francis Lawrence, he really did such a phenomenal job of building the world, introducing it, giving us this incredible cast. Um, and it's it's still a very thrilling sci-fi venture. I kind of equate it to uh, how Christopher Columbus directed the first Harry Potter movie and did a phenomenal job setting up the Wizarding World visually in motion picture form. And then you have directors like Alfonso Cuaron and David Yates taking it to the next level, which is exactly what Francis Lawrence did with Hunger Games. But I, I think that original just really does such a good job of establishing the franchise and putting you into the world and then uh, allows the, the, the sequels to venture even deeper and take, take it to you know a much more satisfying level. All right, so our number one was universally voted. Like, every single person on their on their ballot put Hunger Games Catching Fire as their number one. It was a clean sweep, which never happened in the Slash lists ever. Uh, so it's kind of surprising to see that, but maybe not surprising. Because I think this movie, it it already has the rules and world and characters established in part one. So it can kind of enter a dead sprint. It can start breaking those rules immediately with the quarter quell, uh, with the idea of... President Snow, Donald Sutherland, who's, who's a really great villain across all four of the original movies, uh, really starting to flex his strength in, in ways that are really terrifying and very, you know, uh, prescient of a lot of things we're seeing all over the world now in terms of how people utilize media to control their enemies and control a uh, message. Uh, it just is a, it's a, it's a, it's a more slickly made movie. Francis Lawrence, I think, is just a far stronger visual director. Uh, it has that coat of polish to it. This is probably the platonic ideal Hunger Games movie uh, in terms of every single thing clicks here. Uh, even a cliffhanger ending, I think, doesn't leave you wanting. and wants you seeing the next part, which is, you know, maybe the opposite of what Mockingjay Part 1 did. Yeah, this is the Empire Strikes Back of the Hunger Games franchise. Um, the that, that that ending that totally throws you for a loop and, like, it gives a little bit of a twist and sets the stage for the finale is phenomenal. The cast in this movie is unreal. First of all, I, I love Sam Claflin as Finnick O'Dare. The guy is just oozing charisma. And oh my god, I love him. <laughs> he's a fantastic character, and and Claflin plays him so well. And then like the ensemble in the game itself is great too. Jenna Malone as Joanna Mason. You even have Alan Richson in in this group as like a, a low level antagonist with within the games. And you have uh, Jeffrey Wright and Amanda Plummer as Beatty and Wyrus. They're they're great additions as well. Philip Seymour Hoffman entering the fray as Plutarch Heavensby. It's just like an unreal collection of, of cast members bringing the story to life. Uh, the game sequence is particularly exciting and probably the best of the franchise. And one of the things that I still remember uh, from seeing this movie, because I saw it in IMAX, it's one of the coolest ways they've used the expanding of the IMAX frame because they didn't use IMAX in Catching Fire until you see Katniss rise out of the elevator into the arena and the screen slowly grows as she, she looks around and sees what the arena looks like. And it was just a really cool, immersive feeling seeing that in theaters. All right, uh, BJ, uh, why is this the best Hunger Games movie? 
Oh my God, I love this movie. Um, every just yes anding everything that Brad said. This is where also where we get the start of the radicalization of Effie Trinket. Uh, you know, we we've we've got Alan Rickman here, we got Reacher, uh, like <laughs> that's a great thing. Um, but we have so much good happening in this movie that it's infuriating um the the game is better philip seymour hoffman as a game maker is better this is in my opinion the best villainous film of daddy daddy donald sutherland as we call him on my teen girl movie podcast um (laughs) because he is so captivating and evil in this movie that it like oh my God, I can't handle him. Um, But at the same time, we are also getting all of those emotional pulls of like, the the games mess you up forever. We now we understand fully why Hamish is the way that he is. We understand why so many of the you see how other people in other districts have been affected by these games aftermath because you have people like Annie who are like just basically manic at any given moment. And I think it is so important that this movie shows the different ways that, you know, trauma can manifest in other people and how these horrible events affect everybody differently, but they are all kind of on the same playing field and they all have the same level of validity. And that is just incredible work, but also just the the mantra of like, know who the real enemy is is one of the most powerful things I have ever seen in a bit of teen media. And I, I like there's I there's so much that I could say about it, but this is such a like it's a perfect film for me in terms of what I'm looking for for a dystopian teen film. Like it is like just textbook perfection for delivering that message. Awesome. Uh, okay, well let's take a break and then we'll be right back. All right, Jacob, before we get into the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, I wanted to bring up the, um, I guess, the knock against the Hunger Games movies at the time, which was, hey, have you ever heard of this little movie called Battle Royale? Isn't the Hunger Games just a copy of that? And I was just curious what you guys think about that all these years later, because that was definitely like the talking point, especially around the first film. It's such a tired argument. It's people who are armed with a very limited pop culture knowledge sometimes feel the need to scream about things they don't understand. I mean... There have been stories about people hunting people for a long, long time. And Hunger Games, I think, has more in common with 70s American sci-fi like Logan's Run than it does with the um, more specific cultural point of view of Battle Royale, which is a very, very Japanese film. Whereas I'd argue that uh, Hunger Games is a very, very American film. Other than kids being forced to kill each other, they have very different perspectives and goals. Yeah, that's well said. I I agree completely. Um, I... (laughs) So when when the first Hunger Games came out, I was still a teenager and I was running like a horror movie blog at that point. And I wrote an article about how these are not the same things. Please stop doing this because so many of like the quote unquote horror old guard at the time kept like badgering me about it. And they were like, well, you're a teenager. Say something about it. What does this mean? And it's like, it's not the same thing. It's not even close to being the same thing. And if you think it's the same thing, you're fundamentally misunderstanding both of these films. (laughs) Uh, Brad, do you have any thoughts about that argument all these years later? You know, I just think that like trying to take away something uh, j- from a popular franchise is pointless. It's just people trying to like seem cool, be like, "Oh, no, it's way better when they did this," you know. And it's like there's always <laughs> similarities across storytelling, and like it doesn't matter that like 
a story, you know, shares certain core things. Like it matters how that story is told. And like the Hunger Games perfectly stands on its own and Battle Royale stands on its own as well. So like people just need to grow up. Well, you mentioned the popularity and the Hunger Games movies were certainly popular. I think uh, as of right now, they're standing at something like $2.9 billion worldwide. uh, And that's without any of the um, box office receipts from the new movie, which is coming out this week. So speaking of that new movie, uh, Jacob, what do you want to do in terms of how we figure out where this film uh, slots in onto the list? Yeah, we tried to get a few of the other writers uh, who have seen the film onto this podcast, but we, we couldn't make it happen. So this is going to be determined largely by me and Brad chatting about this movie that we've both seen, and BJ being an expert from afar, helping us slot it in based on her professional, non-judgmental, neutral opinion. Does this all sound good yes. to everybody? Yes. This sounds yeah. great. And also, for the record, I have read the book. <laughs> okay. In, in that case, you, um, we'll probably have a pretty good idea then. Okay. I'll start by saying that I think the Battle of Songbirds and Snakes is really, really good. I'd say it's top tier Hunger Games. On my personal list, it would give Catching Fire a run for its money. But I'm not comfortable slotting it number one. Um, but I do. I would make the argument that Battle of Songbirds and Snakes belongs in the number two slot. I think it it, it goes to go Catching Fire, Songbirds and Snakes, and then original Hunger Games on, on on our final list. And this is because Songbirds and Snakes does what I think a lot of prequels can't do, which is it justifies its existence. It really is not just, hey, here's the thing that happened earlier. It's here is an earlier story that deeply informs and, and enriches what we see later while being its own thing. It justifies its existence with a brand new story. I think that Coriolanus Snow, the young version of President Snow, who's the lead of this movie, is such a shitbag of a lead character. He's, but it, it but it, it doesn't begin that way. He, he, you're so sympathetic to him at first. He comes from a, a, a hard background. He's struggling. You're on his side. And you realize over the course of two and a half hours, this is, this is a very long movie, and what I think justifies his existence, it, it's, its length, is that this guy who seems kind, who seems charming, who seems like he he uh, is out there to do the right, the right thing, there's a toxicity lurking beneath him. And if the original Hunger Games movies were about an act of rebellion, about how you stand up to power, then Battle of Songbird to Snakes is about how fascism lurks in the hearts of people you know. People who, you know, you, you think are your friends, you think are kind, are they're going to harbor very, very dark feelings that they're going to act on. And how do you know to look out for it? How do you know, to be, how do you know when you need to be safe? Uh, spending two and a half hours watching this guy go from the plucky guy we're rooting for into a, a straight up monster um, without going to spoilers by the end is really upsetting. And that's on top of Rachel Zegler as, as uh, the, the, the female lead, the, the woman who he, the young woman who he's tasked with mentoring in the 10th annual hunger games, uh, who's spectacular. It's a, if, if we didn't already know she was incredible from West side story, this would cement it. It's I, I mean, what a performance I, I, I know from my, my wife who's read the book that uh, the music is a big part of the book as well. Uh, that makes main character is a singer and she sings a lot in the book and in the film. And Rachel Zegler tasked with doing this sort of bluegrassy country um, style performance. Uh, wow. 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 I mean, I think that the two leads here are enough to really sell this film, but also I think the way Lawrence retroactively redesigns his world and says, okay, what would this, what would Pan Am look like? you know, 60 years earlier before Katniss did the Hunger Games. And the, the, the design, it reminds you a lot of the Fallout video games, if you've played those, this sort of retro sci-fi, what if the 50s was the future kind of look. And 
I 100% buy that this world becomes world we see later in terms of a visual and also a thematic overlay in terms of characters. Uh, I think Battle Songbird of Snakes is Francis Lawrence really going for it. And I did not expect that. I really, truly expected this to feel phoned in, like everybody's retreating back to a familiar franchise because it has, has a familiar name to it. But this feels vital. This feels like a movie made for 2023, as BJ mentioned earlier. And I I think it, I, I don't understand how it can't be below number two on our list. Brad, <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of what you said. Um, I I personally wasn't super excited or uh, invested in seeing a prequel to The Hunger Games, especially one that was focused on Snow as a character. And uh, so much so that I, I actually didn't even read uh, the book before I saw this movie. And I kind of liked it that way because I was able to experience uh, the story for the first time in movie form and watch it unfold. And so uh, seeing it that way created a lot of, you know, suspense and uh, and tension and really piqued my interest. And the presentation of it really is uh, compelling. And it, it has these great, powerful performances from Rachel Zegler and Tom Blythe. Um, and I think that, it, uh, like you said, too, like it it resonates in the same way that the Hunger Games movie, movies do, but in a different way, because what makes Coriolanus Snow so like familiar in this is that you have this guy who uh, even though he comes from a family that used to be rich and has like a high status, uh, they've pretty much lost almost everything. And he's, they barely have any money to get by. He's, he's on, you know, the, the, the lower end of the totem pole, like the, the bottom income bracket, but he's putting on a front and pretending and still supports all the diabolical oppressive things that the capital is doing, which like to me ties so in so perfectly to much of the support that happens, you know, on the right wing side of politics today, where you have these people who are in the lowest income bracket thinking that the richest people in the capital have their best interests at, at, at heart and are supporting them blind me. And this is a guy who like, he's, he, th- he sees himself as being better than those in the districts, the same way that some of those people see themselves as being better than immigrants and, you know, different people that they deem as being quote unquote different from them. And so it, it resonates so strongly in that way. And like it, it lands with just a really firm hand. Having said that, I, I do think that the movie runs a little too long as particularly in the second half. Um, and like, I would never say the movie should be split into two because that would make it weird. Just like it did with, with mocking Jay, but I do distinctly remember in the movie thinking, oh, cool, we're about to wrap this up. And then looking and being like, oh, shit, we still have an hour left in this movie. Um, <laughs> I, don't, you, don't, you don't like the Top Gun Maverick of it all? The surprise fourth act? <laughs> no, because the fourth act is is like uh, uh, an hour rather than 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so like, but it, and there is still some really powerful stuff that happens in there. And it's important and integral to the story. So I don't dislike it, but the structure of the story feels somewhat flawed because you really feel the end of that that runtime and it and it starts to drag towards the end um but overall overall i think the story is is stellar and also uh, as a prequel i love that like the winks and nods to the hunger games aren't like george lucas in your face kind of hey remember remember this 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 is coming it's it's subtle thematic stuff that really like uh just it, it works much better than the usual kind of stuff we get from prequels also, Jason Schwartzman is hilarious. Like straight up, one, one, the oh, dark, one of the most darkly funny characters I've seen in a mainstream movie in a long time. Yeah, so many, so many just like brutal laughs because he's such a tone deaf asshole. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, my argument for for defending the the last hour of the movie, well, no spoilers, is that the movie 
ends where you think it's going to end an hour early, 90 minutes in, it ends where you think this whole thing is going. And, it, but it ends on, on, a, on you know, maybe a, a note of triumph, a note of victory for our characters, a note of, oh, things are going to get better for everybody. But we know from the Hunger Games original movie that it's not. Things get so much worse over 70 more years. So the movie takes all that joy and suffocates it. The last hour of Battle of Songbirds and Snakes is somebody taking a happy ending, wrapping its hands around its throat and squeezing the auction out of it. It's not a good time, but it's a necessary time. And it, and it has to happen to lead to the gut punch of the ending, the gut punch of the Hunger Games themselves. So I'd argue that, is it maybe a little long? Yeah. Is it maybe a little... Um, unpleasant yeah it's really unpleasant but it's such a big swing it's such a big nasty swing to remind you that you're in the company of you're in a company of largely bad people of people who have hate in their heart who have evil in their heart and that you know the the the, the, the snakes you know are in the grass they're literally lurking amongst you. you you don't know we all know where snow goes we've seen the original four movies um but halfway halfway through this movie you could be convinced like, oh, is this an alternate universe? Is, is he going to find a way out of this? And the answer is no, as we see that descent. So I, I, I think that it is one of the most astute, you know, representations of a very modern political feeling. And I think just for it, the fact that this movie is looking at the past six years and saying, oh, yeah, crap. And directly kind of trying to wrap its brain around that. I think makes this feel vital in a way that Hunger Games, you know, didn't need to feel vital now, but it, it is. So BJ, having not seen this movie yet, what, what do you think about the book? Does that align with, uh, does your experience reading the book align with what Jacob and Brad have said about the movie so far? So what Jacob is saying definitely aligns with my experience with the book. Um, it is my second favorite book um, after Catching Fire, which is also my favorite movie. Um, I love this book. And something that I think is really interesting that people might not know about this is part of why this book exists is because in like 2016, 2017, Lionsgate was like, well, The Hunger Games is one of our biggest IPs. We should probably, you know, squeeze that a little bit more and see what we can get out of it. We're going to have a writer's room and come up with Hunger Games spinoffs. And Suzanne Collins was like, or, or I could just write a new book. And so that's part of why, like part of why this book exists was so that it could become a movie, which I think is really fascinating and something that doesn't happen very often. But this book came out in 2020 <laughs> and reading this book in 2020 was a mind fuck um, <laughs> because it was not a great year and this is not a very happy uh, kind of book. But I, I, I think that it was really important though because this, I think this book more than the original Hunger Games is a reflection of the way that America has turned. And it is one of the, like by using retrofuturism, it does kind of point of like, no matter how far we think we've come, we've really not gone that far at all. And I live for those kinds of stories. So mm -hmm. if the movie aligns at all with my feelings about the book, then it would be my number two as well, even without seeing it. All right, Jacob, I don't know. What do you, what do you think? I, 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 Look, I may call the shots about a lot of things in Slash Film, but I'm not going to force anyone to acquiesce to a, a spot on a list. Brad, how, where would you put this movie on, on, on the list if you had the choice? 
I, I, I actually think that I do agree with you. I honestly, I think I would put it at number two because even despite the movie's shortcomings, I do think the, the filmmaking being under the guidance of Francis Lawrence is still a step up uh, from the original. And just the, the way it sets the stage for what's to come uh, in the Hunger Games is done in such a, a, a sharp way that like it's it really outdoes, I think, you know, a lot, a lot of other prequels that try to, you know, create a story that feels like it's part of the universe before even when it's set so much further in the past and like it really does set the tone for what's to come later and does a fantastic job of making you invested in a character that you deem as being completely despicable in the uh original series you know tom blythe is is so good and like there's there's moments where like you truly think that maybe there's some hope for snow even knowing that he becomes this tyrannical piece of garbage um and the relationship between uh him and and, and Lucy Graybeard uh really pull, pulls at your heartstrings and you you buy their chemistry so there's there's a, a really a lot to like here and um you know talking about the you know the retro future stuff too I I love the production design uh in this movie so yeah I I personally think that I'm I would be totally fine putting in at, at number two. Oh, there we have it uh in our revised ranking Battle of Songbirds Snakes goes at number two right above The Hunger Games and right below Catching Fire. Excellent. So I want to ask you guys one question before we wrap up, which is like, does this movie, the new movie, end in such a way where there could be more sequels that take place before the original Hunger Games film from 2012? Or does this feel more like a one-off? Okay. I think they could. I I think those stories would be incredibly bleak, like bleak in ways I can't imagine, but they could make them. (laughs) Yeah, there's no like direct setup i would say necessarily except for like uh a loose end that i won't uh spoil you know that they that they could easily use but personally even beyond that i just think that it would be interesting to to watch different versions you know of the games and see how these characters evolve and you know deal with certain situations as you know the the times change as well i think there's a lot of potential there Something that I have always wanted, this is just me fantasy booking, is like, you know how when the Russos pitched Citadel and they were like, it's a spy thing and we see it from all these different countries and there's the Citadel universe. I do not understand why there has never been a series where like it's it's a thing of the games and each season or maybe even each episode is from the perspective of a different district. Like, why have they not done that? That is just money laying on the table. It's a great idea. I, I, it reminds me a lot of um, a, a show that delivered its potential, but I always thought the Purge TV series was a fantastic idea to explore the nooks yes. and crannies of the world. Yes, yes, uh, yes. So I think a more successful version of the Purge TV series could be a template for Hunger Games TV series. And actually, kind of, kind of uh, similarly to an, another Russo Brothers project, I feel like one of the one of the things that you could do if you wanted to give yourself an Avengers style. Uh, franchising of Hunger Games is you you show several different versions of the Hunger Games and then somewhere in the middle of this this 60 year history between this movie and Hunger Games surely they had to have like a greatest hits version of the Hunger Games like they did with Catching Fire where they had a bunch of winners come together and compete before that so like why not do a thing where like you have two or three movies and then you bring those winners, characters you're already invested with into a hunger games where they all have to fight each other. Yeah. You hear that Hollywood? <laughs> or we can do the, the West wing and president snow is horrible government. Just an anti West wing. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Jacob, you mentioned the purge there and I would not be surprised if 
uh, a ranking of the purge movies is coming you know at some point in the history of this podcast in the in the distant oh. future or the oh, short future I I, I I i could rank those right now if you oh same same i used to joke that i would write a book about the purge and its heavy handedness being important for gen z one day one day <laughs> Well, yeah. In the meantime, we may end up coming back and, and uh, revisiting that in podcast form. But um, who knows? We'll see what happens in the in the weeks to come. Uh, but yeah, I think that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode. You can find more about all of the Hunger Games movies at SlashFilm.com, including uh, the new film, The Ballads of Songbirds and Snakes, which I think we have a review up on SlashFilm right now. Yes, from the one person who didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. All right. Well, that's good. So a bunch of different uh, viewpoints. I invited Jeremy here. to come on this podcast. He couldn't make it. And so sorry, Jeremy, you could have fought for the movie you didn't like to be ranked lower, but you weren't here. So we win. <laughs> So there it is. Uh, okay, so Slash Film Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please subscribe to our newsletter. Send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at bpearson at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.